0: Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast, episode 112. Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Jack Mountain Bushcraft School founder and master main guide, Tim Smith. I'm your host, Tim Smith. I'm a registered master main guide and have been a full-time outdoor instructor and guide since founding the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School in 1999. We help people become more skilled, more knowledgeable, more experienced, and more confident in the natural world through our bushcraft and guide training semester programs and multi-week canoe and snowshoe expeditions. You can check out the show notes to all of our podcasts at blog.jackmtn.com. If you're interested in learning more about our college-accredited and GI Bill-approved programs, visit the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School on the web at jackmtn.com. And check out our online network and digital learning academy at bushcraftschool.com. Hello and welcome back to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft podcast for episode 112. Paul VM and I continue our discussion about 10 things he wished that someone had told him when he was getting started with fly fishing. This episode runs just shy of an hour, so let's just get right to it. Welcome back to the podcast, Paul Sveum. We are here to talk about the second half of our previous discussion, about 10 things that you wish somebody had told you when you got started in fly fishing. So first of all, you were just telling me how it's unseasonably warm in central Maine. Are you in central Maine or mid-coast Maine? What would you say?
1: I always say that we're like southern Maine. Okay. uh, But not growing up here, I don't have the room terminology. Uh, then people are like, no, that's like Portland or further south. I think we're central Maine. I, I think it's south central Maine. Yeah. Okay. Where but would yeah, you yeah, draw think, the line
0: at southern Maine? So
1: I always go back to relating every state to Wisconsin. Uh, that's where I'm from. And I just, that's my, my barometer for what a state looks like. And so for me, Bangor, and if you're a Wisconsinite, you're going to get it. If you don't, you know, get a map out. Bangor is like Wausau, Wisconsin. They're like, they're that last community before the North. Everything North of Bangor is the North to me. Everything North of Wausau is the North. Wausau to Madison or Bangor to Augusta to me is like the central part of the state. And then Madison South, Augusta South. That's Southern Wisconsin, Southern Maine. So I think we're kind of in the transition, transitional zone. Okay, it's a, it's a biological edge between Southern and Central Maine.
0: I'll buy that. I'll buy that.
1: Yeah. Plus, everything is a mitten to me. I've showed you this before. Wisconsin, Michigan, Maine. You hold up your hand like a mitten, that's the state.
0: Excellent. I knew a guy yeah. from Wausau once.
1: That's very random.
0: It's not. Uh, this isn't a one. There once was a man from Nantucket sort of glimmer, <laughs> But uh, I did know a, a young man from Wausau, Chad Zowen. Man, if Chad's listening right now, can you imagine
1: how excited he is?
0: Yeah, to get called out. I mean, this thing gets like literally kajillions of downloads. Kajillion. Yeah.
1: Well, and if you, could, I learned a new number. Uh, if you pull up the podcast or the podcast, pull up the blog that I wrote. That was the part two of this. Uh, I had to. Uh, give myself a little bit of space to get rambly in the beginning because I, I, I write a lot. My brain thinks fast. I learned a new number, which is the quintillion. Um, I guess I probably could have figured out what that meant, but I had never any context for it, except for the fact that the game of checkers has 500 quintillion possible moves in every single game.
0: I read, I, that. Up. Yeah. I read that online. Actually, I read that the blog that you wrote.
1: I I I happy. I'm, I happy. I happy. I'm happy that I'm I'm still teaching you some new things.
0: So and can so, we can we get serious here? Where you said the chess and checkers are the two best selling and most yeah. important board games of all times. I, I feel like you're you've got an angle that you're going to throw another game
1: out there. Like
0: Shoots and ladders.
1: It is. It is. Except for the fact that that game is a game of chance not a game of skill. I mean, yeah, you could like cheat a little bit, which makes it a game of skill, but shoots and Ladders is like roulette. It's black, white, or green. Shoots and Ladders is just rolling the dice.
0: Okay, I, I so see to where So it's like going a separate there. category.
1: You, you see that? And so checkers and chess are the two most popular games. I'm just gonna say of all time, just because I can. And this is, uh, we're on the internet, which makes me an expert, which makes that true. Someone
0: in like a few days, uh, one of our quintillion number of listeners will say that those are the oldest and most important two games, and they know it's so because they heard it on the internet.
1: And you heard someone saying it. on the internet. So There's a lot of power speak. there
0: in our era of kind of misinformation, disinformation. I remember being a kid, if somebody said something on TV, it was like accepted as the truth. And it's interesting that yeah. we still sort of have that, even though any knucklehead can throw something on the Internet. Uh, it's still when you hear someone else say it in like a sort of broadcast kind of capacity, it seems to carry similar weight. although a- much less, but there- there's still like a-, a twinge of that, if you will.
1: Oh, yeah. Look at Robert Stack.
0: Like he's the voice that comes in my head. Unsolved Mysteries.
1: We're like, I'm pretty sure most of that show was wildly not true. But man, when he said it, like, I I believe that there was a ghost haunting that Chris Mill and, you know, torturing its uh, current occupants.
0: Yeah. Or, you know, the ancient alien guy, like everything that guy says is true. It's true.
1: I remember we've talked about this before, with the printed word, too, that, you know, because we both have a book problem and there is so much power that goes into the printed word versus the spoken word. So you and I can be talking about, uh, you know, some aspect of bushcraft or or whatever, but if you print it and then someone has to buy that in a magazine or a book, it carries so much more authority and weight for, well, for a good reason. You know, the printed word was wildly important and, and powerful over the last, what, thousand years? Where's our history buffs out there?
0: Like, when did Steve Gutenberg invent the movable type?
1: I think it was when he was writing the script for House Party 2.
0: It was before he starred in Three Men and a Baby. I can tell you that. Along with uh, Ted Danson. And uh, who was the third in that? Jeez, I don't know.
1: I wonder. Joey from Full House popped in my head. I know that was not the actor.
0: Anyway, um, S- Steve cool. Gutenberg, nothing that guy can't do. First, he invented the printing press. Then he starred in a whole bunch of awesome 80s movies. Uh, I don't know what he's doing now, but it's probably pretty something pretty spectacular. Which brings so. me to my on. big point yeah. about me being, I am currently in Austin, Texas. You're um, still in Texas. I am still in Texas. But, you know, one of my big heroes, the guy who invented the uh, the guy who invented radio right? Uh, Tesla, if you've heard of him. Also responsible for the alternating current on which most of our houses still run, um, electricity. So he was a big wheel there and had this huge impact on the technological world and and still is to this day. Went a little dark and quiet for a little bit and then was like in this awesome 80s rock band uh, out of Sacramento, California. And then you know they did their thing still one of the greatest bands of all time and then he started this electric car company and moved to Austin Texas and I'm like this guy's always been a hero of mine I'm going to go meet him and I came down here and you know I can't I can't seem to find him and there's some other guy that he made like the CEO of the company and he's running around in the media all the time you know doing this and that and uh but I haven't been able to find Tesla himself but you know what a guy you know electricity radio rock bands and electric cars nothing that guy can't do
1: you know i i i wish that people listening to this could be a part of the visual moment to this because we've known each other for a long time
0: uh probably, probably going 20 on years
1: 20 years and i i know as soon as the first syllable comes out of your mouth when you're going into when you're going into the long drawn out Joke, and I think what's most what you, entertaining. What are you talking what's about? Most, what's most 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 entertaining to me is not the joke itself, but watching your face <laughs> while you're like two or three minutes into like a five minute long punchline. Uh, that that's the comedy gold right there. Uh, All right, I don't even <laughs> know what's
0: going on now. I don't know.
1: So what? You know what I was saying before you started recording us was that it's everything's weird right now. Like I woke up, it's weird. I haven't been sleeping, which is weird. Um, and right now in, in south central Maine it's like 55 degrees and and windy and overnight we like lost all of our snow which I don't know I think it's like the the warmth and the the, at this time of year when it's not supposed to really be this warm I've already thought about getting the uh, syruping equipment out which is weird it's like three weeks early and so it's put me in a weird mood and so there's
0: always a couple of weird like northern New England always has those a yeah. few weird weather events. I mean it's easy now to sort of pile on and say it's all climate change and global warming, but but there's always been a few weird warming events. We were on a snowshoe trip once uh and i referenced this weather event pretty regularly. We were out on the back 40 of uh Squawpan um you know a couple of miles anyway down from from the dam where we park and it was like 40 below at night and then in 24 hours it wore it warmed up to 50 above and poured rain. So it was like a literally a 90 degree temperature swing in 24 hours. And there's nothing worse. If you're out on a snowshoe expedition, there's nothing worse than like a thaw and a rain. You know, people think, Oh, it's warm. It's better. It's easier. Like you're it's, that's the worst because you're stuck. You can't travel. You can't haul sleds. It's tough to even get out to get a stick of firewood. Everything's wet and frozen and it's just brutal. So
1: Yeah, that was really tough. Actually, what I remember about that trip is you and I stopped at Beans on the drive up from Wolfboro to get rain jackets because we had all of our winter gear and we looked at the forecast and it was, yeah, it was like 40, 45, 50 degrees for like three days straight and it rained. I'm like, man, I don't, it's kind of like what you were saying. You know, when you have all your winter stuff, like I didn't have a raincoat and I still have it, it was like a bright orange LL Bean, like $20 raincoat.
0: Nice. and then yeah
1: and then it froze solid
0: yeah and then, then it was it a skating really rain.
1: cold and really windy i remember kind of teach the guys about ice and we had to get
0: kind of in the cedar grove a little bit just to get out of that wind because it was so fierce. oh yeah we hiked across right to yeah. The C- yeah, yeah i remember that hike it was like got yeah it. it was like brutally cold and windy
1: but it was cool though because that, man that's when you learn what your gear is made of and what you're made of when it's like 40 below and windy and like we gotta get out there and that'll that'll learn you that i'll teach you a lesson or two yeah it's super
0: fun though that was weird yeah so yeah fly fishing we've been rambling i don't even know how long yep. but uh so the last five of the 10 things um uh should we do a, a super quick recap what were the first five i have no idea
1: <laughs> i i uh <laughs> so we talked about no, I, you know, I, No, I it started with on. love. A lot of strands no, dude's head. Um, yeah, so we started off with love. You know, you got to love the sport. You got to love what you're doing. And that's true of anything in life. If You don't love it. You're just not going to stick with it. Um, And like, a, you know, we'll get to a little bit later in this list. Fly fishing will definitely push you to, to your breaking point once in a while. And you got to love being out there. So you have something to fall back on. when
0: Yes. Yeah, so we had number go, one right? was love. Number two is your rod real line combo. We don't need to rehash that. Number three were some flies you know, a, a little, a couple of flies that you recommended, uh, odds and ends, and technique. So yep. we're going to jump right in with number six, and number six is location. Right, that's the old real estate
1: adage. It's location, location, location. It's what gives value to a house, and it's also how you find good fishable water. Um, yeah, I, 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 ha- I had a, I had a few stories in my head. Um, and I want to say that when life, and I'll get to location, this is like 5.5, when life gets weird, you got to be able to appreciate the weirdness, just like the, the weather today, or, or or whatever in life, and I, for some reason this morning, I woke up remembering this time, I was fishing out west, and uh, I was, you know, fishing a, a pretty small river, and I lost, I had two flies on, so sometimes when you're by fishing you have multiple flies on your line. I had two nymphs on and you break your flies off quite a bit. And so I broke off both flies, which again happens quite a bit and kept fishing, tied two new flies on, I'm fishing a little bit. My bobber goes down and set the hook, I get a fish on. I'm pretty happy about that. And as I'm reeling it in, I see two flies, which is weird because if you have two flies on and you have a fish, one of those should be in the fish's mouth. So I'm reeling in, I see two flies on my line and then I see the fish and I couldn't really figure out what I was looking at. And so this is the weirdness that you're, that happens sometimes when you fly fishing, you're just living mm-hmm. life, is that my bottom fly on my line hooked the loose hook of my broken off two flies and they like linked together. And then on the fourth fly, there was a fish. It was the most bizarre thing I, I think I've probably seen fly fishing in my life. Um, so anyway, the point is that things get weird weird things happen. Um, So with location, uh, obviously a lot of that's going to depend on where you are and what kind of fish you're looking for. Um, I'll kind of stay with the cold water and the trout fishing for now just to keep this a little short. Um, So uh, the best thing you can do is call a fly shop, is get that advice on where to go from someone who knows the area. Chances are they're going to point you into a location that they point everybody. They're going to send everyone to the same bridge, the same put-in, the same Uh, place um, just because it's probably a place that fishes well and and so they're probably going to send you to a place where you're going to see other people uh, which isn't always a bad thing uh, because you're going to be able to see other people and and watch what they're doing and and maybe pick up some technique and some tips and it's going to give you people to chat to uh, chat with while you're on the river so outside of just getting direct advice uh, either from uh, calling a fly shop uh, you know you can spend some time on google earth and and look for look for rivers Uh, you got to know what the fish are looking for in order to find the fish. So fish really just need three things in life, especially cold water trout. Uh, they need oxygen, they need food and they need cover. And so if you can find water that has those three components, if there's fish in the river, you're gonna find them there. And so oxygenation happens when you have cold water and that's why trout eat cold water because colder water holds more dissolved oxygen. And so uh, the water needs to be cold. And anything that stirs up the water. So think about a big set of rapids, you know, water crashing over a rock or a waterfall that's going to infuse uh, atmospheric oxygen and the water is going to dissolve it and the fish can breathe it and they're happy. So anything that kind of turns that water up is going to create oxygen. Uh, Also, that moving water is going to stir up food that lives on the bottom of the river. So little aquatic insects um, or other fish or crayfish, it's going to stir those up and create kind of a... Uh, you know, the, the smoothie scenario where there's this kind of food everywhere in the water column for fish. And then given that trout typically live in shallower water, and there's reasons for that, uh, they need cover. Uh, if you look for um, fish in a, in a river, you're probably going to see osprey and eagle and um, other birds that will prey on fish, uh, not to mention otters and, and aquatic mammals that will eat fish. Eventually, trout are always getting preyed. And they're very aware of that, and they're very wary. So they need some kind of cover. That cover can come in the form of water depth. It can come in the form of an undercut bank of a river where they can kind of hide under the bank, or it can come in the in the form of a down tree, down logs, or even aquatic vegetation. So if you can find those three things, chances are you're going to find trout. Uh, I'm typically looking for water that's maybe a foot to six feet deep. If it's any shallower, There can be fish in there, trout can live in, you know, a few inches of water if they have to, but typically a foot is kind of on that lower end where you're consistently going to find fish, and six feet is about the depth where fishing them, fishing to them is accessible, and, and, you know, if they're any deeper than that, you need different gear, it's a little harder to pull them out of deeper water. Uh, So if you have all those things, a little bit of uh, moving water, we don't want big class six rapids, so even like a ripple, which is something that just creates a little disturbance on the surface water. The kind of surface of the water, um, that'll create food, oxygen, and even that little surface disturbance will will create cover for a fish. So those are some of the water features. Um, and again, that's specific to trout and, and rivers. Did that does that paint a picture for you, Tim? Does that does that work for you?
0: Yeah. No, I like that. Pretty succinct. Um, yeah. And another good thing. Another, I'll throw out there another good thing to look
1: for. And some people don't like to fish bridges because bridges are artificial. Um, And and fly fishermen can be very traditional. There's this kind of duality of of tradition and innovation with fly fishing where some people don't like to fish around bridges because it's a man-made piece of uh, cover or a disturbance to the watershed. But you think about what a bridge does. First of all, uh, when we're talking about location, we wanna make sure we're staying legal. And I don't know the uh, uh, land access or trespassing laws in all 50 states. But out here in Maine, you can access a river uh, via a bridge. And that's the same in Wisconsin and Montana as well, a bridge offers access to a waterway. that's legal. Um, you know, Montana' is different. where Montana, everything under the high water mark of a river is considered public. And so you can walk anywhere where there is water some time of the year, you can walk legally. Uh, out here in Maine, landowners own the banks of the river. I believe it's until half uh all the way till half of the river is owned by a landowner but it has to be posted so if it's unposted um that means you're you're not legally you know fully covered to walk there but it's it's accepted that you can you can walk on that on that bank um so anyway the point is, is that just you know call your local uh fish and wildlife or department of natural resources and ask them what your local or statewide public access laws are and just go with that because you want to make sure you're staying legal out there um there's a really famous river back in wisconsin where a couple of the really historic traditional pools for um lake run rainbow trout tongue uh, tongue-in-cheek call them steelhead uh it's a very traditional steelhead river in wisconsin and a couple of the really really old traditional holes were closed this year to private access because people were being knuckleheads and littering or, and we'll get down to etiquette number nine here, but they just weren't being cool. So access was lost. Um, so be cool, follow the rules.
0: Um, and that'll, that'll keep you in good stead. So yeah. But we were talking about bridges. So oh, bridges, yeah, bridges are, bridges are good access. They have overhead yeah. protection. So the Eagles aren't going to be swooping in. There's usually yep. a deep hole because when they, when they're digging out the bridge, you know, putting in the pilings, there's usually a hole, uh, right by the bridge. And there's definitely like big obstructions to the current if they're like bridge abutments and things that means there's a dead slack water space behind it which are also great yeah. river features but anything else about bridges trolls, trolls. You gotta watch out for them don't uh, don't
1: burn them in life
0: yeah don't don't burn the bridges yeah. The, yeah
1: jeff jeff bridges is pretty cool
0: jeff bridges is cool the dude yeah
1: madison county a lot of bridges there
0: yeah. Uh, no, and
1: no, you're absolutely right. And so bridges are one of those places where I know some people don't fish them, but you're right. Bridges create uh, artificial cover. Uh, I actually, I woke up this morning also trying to figure out why, because I'm not a structural engineer, why there is usually a big deep pool under a bridge. You're right. It probably has to do with how they dredge it out to get the pylons in or whatever. But yeah, there's usually deep water. Um, and then you're looking at either a constriction with the bridge, which is going to increase the flow rate of the river where it gets kind of squeezed to go under the roadway. And that's going to create more current, which is going to create, again, more opportunity for food to get kicked up and, and uh, brought to the fish, which are probably waiting on that downstream side of the bridge in the eddy or the calmer water, waiting for that food to kind of get escalated by, if I can make up a new verb
0: today. So
1: bridges, bridges are, they're not a bad place to start.
0: Yeah. And, and they're certainly easy to drive to, right? Usually. Usually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I like driving over They, <laughs> they keep me. They keep me out of the water. I went um, to college with a bunch of guys who ended up as uh, civil engineers. So like designing bridges and roadways and, and, you know, a couple of these guys were kind of knuckleheads. So I almost wish that the the bridge designer, they had to put like his name on it. Cause there were a few of those guys that if I saw that they were responsible for the bridge, I wouldn't drive over it. You know, I don't no, trust them. Anyway. No, it's like all, it's all toothpicks and popsicle
1: sticks. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't know. I'll just, Call around, look online. Uh, Google Earth can be a neat tool for fly fishermen to find new water. Uh, if you come up for the May learn uh, the intro to fly fishing class in May that we're running up at Jack Mountain, um, which we still have a couple spots open for, we're going to we're going to go to a waterway. I'm not going to name it um, uh, on the interwebs, but we're going to go to a waterway that I did a lot of the original scouting for on Google Earth, and so it was a waterway that we're familiar with. At Jack Mountain, but not necessarily for fishing as much. And so I followed this kind of waterway up to its headwaters, and using Google Earth, I was able to locate a place where I could see a, a bridge for access and some moving water, which was you clearly white water on Google Earth, and I could see the features, the uh, hydrological feature, features, features of that river on Google Earth. And just by using that one online tool, I was able to be like, okay, this is a good spot I want to check out. So uh, Google earth is kind of a cool thing for that.
0: And it's super cool for an area like, uh, Aroostook County, like Northern Maine, where there's tons and tons and tons of water and tons of land. And, uh, I think that's one fly shop. Um, So typical like small town fly shop, you go in, there's probably one river running through town and they can tell you like the five access points of of their one waterway. But, you know, what we have in Aroostook County is like 7,000 potential fishing spots and one little fly shop. So you're not going to get that sort of like local intel by going to the fly shop and buying a couple of flies. And that's where... Uh, Google Earth really is your friend because it's more remote. There's fewer people around. There's less people to ask. And maybe nobody's fished that piece of ground for, you know, 20 years or so.
1: Oh, yeah. Especially up in northern Maine. I mean, as long as you have cold water, there's going to be brook trout in that river, in that that watershed. Um, And yeah, I mean, I I always recommend people, you know, in Maine, we have a Maine Gazetteer uh, that shows all the roads, logging roads of, of the state of Maine, which is it's probably in every, every mainer's vehicle, or it should be. And if you're planning a weekend, just circle a few of the places that you have a couple rivers and easy access points and just go put the boots on the ground and check it out. Um, you know, the, the more adventurous you are, the more willing you are to kind of bushwhack through the swamps and the older thickets and, and get to some of these more obscure places, you know, the more of those little gems you're going to find. I, I, I agree. There's, I'm sure that there's pools. And a little sections of creeks up north in Maine that haven't been fished uh, this lifetime, this generation, or last hundred years, even because it's just so many small creeks up north that hold fish that, you know, there's just not that many people fishing up there.
0: Or even uh, some of the bigger rivers, you know, I think you and I both have had the luxury of seeing most of the county, uh, most of northern Maine by canoe over the years. And you think about just some of those little stretches of the Alagash or the Aroostook you know, like, That it's not near a road it's not near a campsite and probably nobody's fished it you know in forever so it's really it really is full of like hidden gems i'm sure that some of the guides who work for some of the uh lodges in the north main woods have you know they they probably have like their 500 favorite little spots and stuff but other than those guys like it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a production to get in there so uh,
1: it is i mean it's still kind of a wild west up there. i mean you go up to you know, south central Montana, and there's the, the major rivers, you know, whether it's the Madison, the Yellowstone, the Gallatin, um, you know, all around the Bozeman, Livingston area that everyone goes to. That there's the huge rivers that are iconic of full of fish. And Montana doesn't have the, the network of smaller little tributaries that just go everywhere. Um, you know, those watersheds out west are bigger and relatively small, kind of, so to speak.
0: Wait, They're bigger um, and, so, and they're small.
1: Yeah, they're bigger, but they're, the rivers are big, but the areas they drain are narrower and okay. there's just less water out there. Um, you know, you, you go to northern Maine and you can't throw a rock without hitting the pond or a river or, or some kind of waterway up north. So, um, Maine does present some neat challenges of like, well, where do you go? It's a little analysis paralysis kind of thing versus out west where you're like, I'm just going to go to this one of these four rivers and, uh, and have a great day. Uh, so, northern Maine presents that challenge of kind of where uh, but, you know, huge reward in that
0: personally. All right. So I think that's location. Uh, let's go on to number seven, hire a guide. What do you mean by that? I mean, I think I know what you mean by that, but but <laughs> explain that thought process to me a little bit. Uh, yeah. So it's kind of like you actually just
1: said it pretty well, um, that you can spend a lot of time learning a waterway or learning an ecosystem of one river or a set of rivers and i've done it you know just you, you go out and, and maybe the river's a bust uh maybe just for whatever reason that section section of river isn't holding the numbers of fish uh that that you know you want or that make the day fun and so you're like okay you go home check that off your list um, or even on some of the major waterways that are great fisheries you can go out and hit stretches that just aren't as productive or maybe you're not tuned into the hatches or the flies or the fish species or the other uh, aquatic invertebrates that the fish are are eating. And so you're just not going to time it right. So you're not going to have that experience that you're probably looking for. And so I I always recommend hiring um, a guide, uh, not only for like your own personal development, like if you want, you you can get tips on casting or fly selection or stuff, but you're just going to, you're in that one day or half a day you spend with a guide, you're going to, get the insight into that waterway, that watershed, that river, that stretch of river, that two miles river, whatever you're fishing or whatever you're interested in, you're gonna get that instant kind of better picture of what's going on and how to fish that waterway. Um, You know, I've done both, where I've tried to figure out water sheds on my own and it it works eventually, it takes some time. And then, you know, I fished, you know, the first few times on the Yellowstone out west uh, with a buddy who was a guide And then uh, a really good friend who uh, had done a little guiding as well. And, you know, just spending a day with those two guys, uh, I instantly, it clicks, you know, because then you're seeing what they're doing. You're seeing their fly selection, where they're casting to on the water and kind of why. And then it all kind of makes sense without having you having to kind of uh, paint by numbers and and wait to see what the picture looks like. You just get get it right away. And then you can go out and recreate that experience, uh, you know, day after day.
0: I'll use the analogy like you can learn to uh, be a novelist if you just get like a typewriter, a pen and a paper, but hanging around with other people who are more skilled at it, you will dramatically shorten your learning curve. So I think when you say hire a guide, you know, it's, it's almost like the idea of like a short term mentorship. So if you go out with somebody who knows what they're doing and has, has local knowledge that they've developed over the years it just will dramatically shorten your learning curve and probably be way, excuse me, way more fun.
1: Well, yeah, and I'll throw out there too that uh, fly fishing, so my brother's a pro golfer, not pro in the aspect of PGA, but he's a pro, he runs a golf course. And so we have that kind of running joke about fly fishing and golfing, very similar. And both activities are confidence activities where, oh, sorry if I just beeped here. This is also a like 20-year-old computer uh, both activities require confidence to do well. Um, and, and maybe whatever your hobby is, you can make that connection. Like, Oh yeah. Uh, you know, needle point is a confidence activity too. I don't, can't imagine it would be, but maybe it is, um, with golf and fly fishing. If you don't have confidence in what you're doing, you're not going to be able to do it very well. Uh, and I'll, I'll leave golf aside because that's pretty obvious. That's all a head game. Uh, with fly fishing, it's less of a head game, but you still need to have confidence that the fly you chose and the place you chose to put that fly in that river are gonna work. And so the way this looks is people always say, well, what, what's the best fly? What are the top five? five? Of course I did that last week, but you know, what are the flies I need or what's the best fly for right here? And like I said last week, it doesn't, I'm not gonna say it doesn't matter, but to a certain degree, it doesn't matter. What does matter is your confidence That that fly is going to work because if you fish a fly with confidence, you're just going to catch more fish because you're going to be paying attention. You're going to be attentive, which I think is redundant. Paying attention and being attentive is that redundant? They the same thing.
0: I think Uh, so. It's close. Same root. I really
1: apparently I really wanted to drive home the paying attention thing. If you're going to be confident, you're going to fish that fly better. And you're gonna catch more fish. And so, to me, that's the thing that guiding or that going with the guide will give you is confidence that you're putting your fly in the right part of the river with the right technique at the right time, and it's gonna work because you've seen it work. And once you've seen it work, you're gonna get the confidence that it'll work again and again and again and again. And that's when you start turning the corner as a fly fisherman. You have that confidence that when you go out, you know what you're going to do. You know, that it's going to work. And if it doesn't work, that's just the universe telling you that you're not that cool, but confidence. That's what going to the guide will give you confidence that
0: what you're doing is going to work. Okay. Moving on to number eight, practice stillness. Yeah. That sounds very like Zen, like, uh, you know, somebody's doing the, like that Lotus pose on the side of the river. Uh, what do you mean by that? It's (laughs) it's fly cheap. <laughs>
1: fly cheap. I like
0: that. That's, that's rich. And
1: if nothing else good comes out of it today, we
0: nothing, have that going. Nothing else good is coming out nothing of this Nothing else. Today. That's it. I've peaked.
1: I think we should wrap
0: this up. Um, so I'll tell you no, a story so. about an old, an old guy that I knew. <laughs> He's been gone now, passed on probably 25 years. Uh, but uh, growing up in New Hampshire, there was this little teeny stream, and it was a good long walk through the woods. And he told me about pulling huge trout out of that when he was a kid. And I was like, ah. Oh. And the stream, like literally, it was probably only like four feet across, right? But it, it, when it went through this big marshy area, it got really deep. So there were these huge undercut banks. And I think he said he was pulling like 18 inch brookies out. This was like 1915 or something. But anyway, and he said, and here's the secret. He, I'm like, here's, here's how it did. Because when you walk next to this stream, uh, it was kind of marshy so that the fish would feel the impacts of your footfalls. So old guy Pete says, he says, it would take me about 45 minutes to walk out there. He says, so I'd walk out there and I'd sit down about five or six feet from the stream. So the fish couldn't see him. And he says, I would sit down and I would smoke a cigarette. And then he said, that would take me about seven minutes to smoke the cigarette before I'd throw in a line. Then he says, that amount of time, like this is essentially practicing stillness, but that amount of time would give the fish, they would probably be agitated when they could feel his footfalls as he approached and that amount of time for him to smoke the cigarette would allow them to get relaxed and then he could drop in a line and hook him and, and game over.
1: <clears throat> yeah, you know what's really cool about that is that the mountaineer Paul Petzl, I I believe, he's, I think it was Paul Petzl, said the same thing about emergency situations when he would be a Mountaineer guy is that if anything happened, if you got lost, unless there was like an urgent need to do something, he would smoke a cigarette because that would give him that like five minutes to calm down, assess the situation and not make an error in your first move in an emergency. So I feel like
0: we're endorsing smoking right now. Uh, well, it's, this was like 19, this was like World War II era. So yeah. It was, it was yeah, way back. Smoked. Smoking's not yeah. good. Don't smoke.
1: It's not. The smoking the proverbial cigarette. Maybe just, just scroll Instagram for five minutes. Just kidding. Um, which is, but no, it, it's absolutely is, true. Nothing. <laughs> I don't know which is worse. But, I was listening to uh, a book
0: the other day and they basically <laughs> said that social media is the tobacco of our generation. Like, oh, God. The negative effect. So it's funny that you said that unprompted. Wow. Uh, That's funny. The comparison. Wow, well, I don't even
1: know where to go from that. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, well, yeah, it's funny because uh, I, I've seen that up north times. we get getting those uh, real spongy, soft, uh, kind of swampy areas and your, your footstep will literally send you know, ripples out into the water, excuse me. But uh, it's, it's, it's true. So fish, like I said, are very, very uh, trout, are very wary creatures. And they can see out of the water pretty well, because that's where a lot of their predation comes from. So they're always looking up. They don't look down because crayfish don't eat. They're always looking up because that's where their threats come from. And due to the refraction of light, they can actually see at a better angle than we think they can. So as you're approaching them, it's just like, you know, when you put a stick in the water, the light refracts and the stick looks bent. The fish's vision is the same way, so they can actually see a lot further and a lot better than we think they can. Um, so, you know, there's people that will wear out the knees of the waders because they'll crawl hands and knees to approach a river. And I think that's a really good goal. That's an ideal. I don't do that very often. Uh, you know, one back surgery down, and I'm, I'm a little less nimble than I used to be, but that's a really good mental image because that is how we should approach uh, any kind of trout stream is with kind of a real stealthy approach. Um, and one of the places where this has been the most obvious to me is uh, Depew Spring Creek, just south of Livingston, um, is a you know crystal clear spring creek. And the brown trout and the rainbows are huge uh, for reasons that I can talk about later about spring creeks. But the fish are big, the water is super clear, and the fish are feeding all day long. And you can see them as like an aquarium where you're looking at 16, 18 inch brown and rainbow trout and bigger. Just living in this maybe 20 foot, 25 foot across river where the water's maybe three, four feet deep, and so you can see fish everywhere, and they're really, really hard to catch, which will go into number ten on that list. But with that kind of water, I've seen people just crash into the water. Like they'll go from their car, they're suited up, they have their you know aquatic tactical assault equipment on, and they just crash into the water. They splash, they make a mess. And uh, they're not going to catch anything because those fish are gone. Um, you know once a trout is scared, they'll typically go away and hide for uh, x, x amount of minutes, 10 minutes, five minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour. Uh, a trout hold a grudge, they sulk, and if you scare them off, they're going to stop eating. And by sheer dint of what we're doing as fishermen, they're not going to eat, they're going to be really hard to catch. And so, you know, not every situation, like if you're fishing at, you know, bridge or whatever, where those fish are used to cars rumbling overhead and gravel falling into the water from the roads, maybe those fish are a little less wary where you can just walk up there and you can start fishing, you don't need to slither up like a, a salamander. Um, but, you know, just think about it. the shallow where the river is, the clearer the water is, uh, you know, you gotta be quiet. You know, you maybe keep your voice down a little bit, you don't run, you don't jump into the water, you don't throw rocks. You don't bring your quote unquote fishing dog with you. Uh, there's a good quote that says there's no such thing as a good fishing dog because dogs by definition love splashing, swimming, chasing things, barking, and all those just don't really lead to a good fly fishing dog.
0: Well, yeah, I'll use the analogy of like, if someone's going out hunting, you know, stealth is super important. You don't go out hunting with a boom box and like a barbecue and, making all sorts of racket. And if you just approach fishing the same way, realizing that you are trying to catch that fish, like you're the predator and stealth, you know, find me a predator that doesn't use stealth. uh, And I think you'd have a hard time trying that. So much so that... that I saw this movie about this alien that was chasing Arnold Schwarzenegger through the jungle. And I think its name was Predator. And like, you couldn't see this thing or hear it. So yeah, be like that guy. Can you believe two future governors in that movie? (laughs) <laughs> I told you that story Who would have seen, once, that? Right? Who would have seen gr- that coming? I had a group of guys, uh, when was, this was like 2011 or something, I don't remember what the political climate was at the time, but we were going into the Allagash, and I had uh, I had a guy from England, a guy from Canada, a guy from <laughs> Denmark, a guy from France, and uh, there's some other country represented And like people started talking about politics and they're like, you know, they asked me, you know, how do you, they wanted to understand American politics. And I said, all you got to do is watch the movie Predator because it has the future (laughs) governor of California and the future governor of Minnesota in it. And then you'll understand everything. And then I just shut up and didn't say anything else the whole time. So to this day, I don't know if they (laughs) thought I was 100% serious or not, but so so if you're an undergraduate right now studying political science, drop out of school, watch Predator ten times, and you'll know everything about modern American politics. I mean, you've got to wonder if like the lesser actors in the movie just feel like
1: they haven't really lived up to their expectations.
0: I mean, like the guy, guy other... who was like selectman for his town or something, and he's like, "I never amounted <laughs> to anything because I wasn't a governor like those two guys."
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, I was thinking about that when you mentioned, like, we're hunters. Like, when you're fishing, you're hunting. And I think that's a mentality that it doesn't always come across in the fly fishing world as much as it probably should. Because on one hand, this is like um, a, a peaceful pastime where we're going out there and community nature, and, and, you know, we have all this technique of false casting and tying these little imitation insects. But on the other hand, like, it's hunting. You know, the goal of fly fishing is to catch a fish, whether you keep that fish or not, it all, it doesn't matter. Because the act of fooling, catching, subduing, and capturing that animal is like nine tenths of hunting.
0: I thought and, the goal was to get a lot of likes on your Instagram post from like with the, the the stupid uh grip and grin when you're holding the fish at the end of the day. That's not that's the goal. Why my- why so my insta
1: name is extreme trout hunter <laughs> 0169 because it was already taken 0168 times
0: the real extreme trout hunter
1: <laughs> yeah you know there was a i can't remember the name of the author but he was talking about in the world of eco psychology how like nature photography has become a surrogate activity for the hunting where it's it's a it's, it's a good hobby. I'm not, if you're into like photography, nature photography, that's cool. Um, it's fine. But if you're, people use that to replace the hunt, replace that hunting experience, which is so important, visceral and, and integral to who we are as a species, um, that people will kind of substitute these quasi, not fake or false, but surrogates, a replacement activity. Um, and so that kind of is like the, the fly fishermen who are old, and I, I met one guy, I, I say this as if there's a lot of people out there, I met one guy who uh, would fish with flies, but he cut, he cut the, uh, the bend off his hook. So he would have every aspect of fly fishing, but when the fish would take the fly, obviously there was no hook, so it wouldn't penetrate the fish's mouth and he wouldn't actually catch it. But he would get the take, which, you know, for some people is enough. And I was like, you know, that's cool. You know, maybe like part of me wishes someday I'll be satisfied with that. But it's not it. You know, like there's a very cliched slogan in fly fishing that the tug is the drug. That that tug on your line and the bend in your rod is an extension. It's a transference of energy in the fish through your line, through your rod, into your hand, into your heart. No, it's true. When you feel that rod bent over. That is the moment of w- why we do it. And it's ephemeral. It's fleeting. It's like a 15, well, it could be how long that fight is, but it's like a minute long, maybe 10 seconds
0: of an experience. That, sort of like that, the, the dopamine hit you get and you see that somebody likes your awesome fly fishing picture on Instagram. It's well, fleeting. Especially when
1: that person is a trout hunter extreme
0: 1069. Yeah, or the real trout hunter. Extreme. The real
1: trout hunter extreme 1069. And you're like, wow, a celebrity liked my post? Yes. I'm done today. That's like my flight cheat Like you just check out, like I've peaked. That's it. I'm I'm there. Um yeah. No, it, it's true though. It's it's that moment. It's that it's that brief little moment that we spend all this time, energy, apparently 45 minutes already of talkie time. Really? So, wow. I don't know, 40, half an hour. But even last year at the intro, of the fly fishing class, one of the days we just fished, uh, 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 Scopan Lake, Swatman Lake, up in the county, and guys were catching little perch, little panfish, um, and you would think that they were landing that thirty-eight-inch landing They were having a blast. It was like the, the most fun they were having that day, and it was like me in the story last. week catching the white perch on the West Branch. Hill. It's that, it's that feeling that I've hunted. I'm successful. My family's going to eat
0: today. Um, I, I'm a winner. I'm, I'm cool. I did it. All right yeah so let's move on to number nine number nine etiquette and etiquette etiquette is that's french for like uh like a fancy kind of fly leader right i I think it's a fish racket a fish racket
1: because when i look at the word etiquette i see racket
0: um
1: and so fly fishing is a racket that's what i'm saying okay that that didn't come out right (laughs) yeah yeah you know uh, be a jerk be you know
0: is that Don't be a jerk. Just be cool, man. Just, just be cool. Well, like for example, if somebody else is like crawled on their hands and knees to get to this little pool, and you just come barreling down the bank, scaring everything within half a mile, like that's kind of bad etiquette. That sucks. You know, you know if you're, a, I was hiking once and I saw a kid,
1: and he had a boombox strapped to his backpack, and I could see a box of Hostess zebra cake sticking out the side of the backpack, and like blasting music, you could hear it down the trail that don't be an idiot Yeah, don't 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 be like that don't don't let your actions
0: negatively impact someone else out there or other you know other things would be don't litter pick up litter if you see it but here's a bit of etiquette that i want to throw out there for everybody in podcast land so imagine you know somebody just uh follows their dream finally opens up their little fly shop in their small town and uh You know, they're, they're probably not killing it. They're probably not, you know, driving to work in a new Maserati or something. You know, they're probably just getting by. And you know what people do all the time? They'll show up and ask for free stuff in the form of information and not buy anything. So really good etiquette. You want to get a little bit of local intelligence from somebody in the know, like at the fly shop, buy three or four flies, you know. You know, be uh, demonstrate your willingness to support their business by buying a couple of things from them. And then maybe, too, maybe uh, you spend a few dollars. Maybe they give you a little bit better information. Maybe they don't send you to the same uh, bridge that they send everybody to. Maybe they say, right. well, we'll send you somewhere better.
1: And for God's sakes, nothing should stop you from going into a fly shop with a case of beer and a bucket of fried chicken.
0: Who doesn't
1: love beer and fried chicken? You know, fly shop employees, like you said, probably aren't crushing it. And, you know, free beer and free fried chicken lunch, that'll get you a long ways in a
0: fly shop. Um, so you're saying get them all like drunk off of chicken and, and beer and then hit them up for information? I mean, you should probably be at that point anyway. So, <laughs> uh,
1: but no, yeah, I mean, you're right. Uh, you know, another thing that really kills me is when people go into a fly shop and they'll want to test out eight rods and then they'll go home and buy one online because it's cheaper. And like I will say, look, I do shop online but I also make a point, like you said, if I go to a fly shop, I buy something, um, you know, out here in Maine, I go to Maine Sport Outfitters. I'll give them a little plug because they're a great fly shop um, over in Rockland. It's a great store. And yeah, I, I buy online because I do, you know, I have a budget, um, but fly shops are closing everywhere. The Local mom and pop fly shops, it's hard. It's a hard um, life to kind of scrape by on. And a quick story, I was telling this to a friend yesterday. I went to a fly shop in Montana a bunch of years ago, looking for a very specific rod length, weight, company, and they didn't have it. And I used like the, "Hey, do you have any more in the back?" The guys like, "We don't have a back. You know, we're not Dick Sporting Goods. You know, we don't have this unlimited, you know, back room supply." And so I just bought a different rod, and I didn't even really like necessarily need it. It wasn't what I was exactly looking for, but I, I love it. It was comforting. It was. Uh, It was satisfying because in our culture, we want everything that we want exactly all the time and we want it to be cheap. And so there was something very like novel and very nice about going to a fly shop and not getting exactly what I wanted, but getting something that was a little different, but I loved it, you know, and and it worked and and that was, that was kind of cool. So um,
0: not to belabor it, shop local for goodness sake. Yeah. That old adage, like if you want to have a nice restaurant in your town, you better go to eat there you know, support your local businesses, or if you know, if it's not your town, support small local business, right? Because yeah. I can tell you that the guy selling the selling the fly rod at Walmart doesn't really care about no. you or you having a good day. And, uh, but the guy just getting by at the local shop, you know, he, he probably does care. That's probably why he doesn't. Okay. And yeah. lastly, number 10, the frustration <laughs> meter.
1: You know, it's funny, I realized I probably shouldn't have Ended this list on like frustration I should have ended it on something like really positive and happy and motivating people to get out there and fish but um I don't you know I needed to 10 and, and that's something that you know if you, you manage expectations of an activity you're gonna you're gonna be a little happier um and I, I guess I, and I throw it out there because it's good for people to know that this is you will get frustrated again it's like golf if you play golf you're gonna have frustrating days. Um, if you needlepoint, I, I don't picture really having a frustrated moment, needlepointing needle or crocheting or knitting. I picture that just being like, you're not going to have a bad day. You're just going to knit and it's going to be like relaxing or whatever. But
0: on, this, on the flip side of that, though, you're probably not going to have an awesome day either. It's pretty level. Yeah. Like your expectations so. are pretty level. Whereas, you know, with fishing... With golf, maybe with golf, you go out there and best game of your life, right? Best game you ever had, and you'll remember it for the rest of your life. Right. Are you ever gonna have those? You don't have the highs and lows, say with with knitting. I, and I what do you do
1: with your best day fishing? You put that picture on Instagram.
0: Yeah, Damn, your
1: best day. That has been, and that's all you see online. Hashtag best my day.
0: best life.
1: Yeah, <laughs> the real extreme trout hunter. 1069. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you're gonna have to update. Uh your gear is gonna break. Uh you I, I have broken rods because I've caught the same stupid tree behind me trying to reach a fish 20 times straight. I've lost a handful of flies and I lose my cool and you pull a little too hard. Bam, your rod snaps at the tip. Um, I have had days fishing where I've got back in my car and just had a little freak up moment where you just spaz, you maybe you yell a little bit. Maybe you just release some of your energy and frustration, anger. And like, I guess I I like to throw it out there because I don't want anyone going fishing and having that moment and then feeling bad about it because everyone's been there. Everyone's gotten super frustrated. And, and I will say that I have snagged myself really deep in the back of like my ear and my neck because I've gotten frustrated with a fly because I've gotten frustrated. And then I, my casting deteriorates, and I get, try, try to just, you know, Thor's hammer this fly out there, and then, you know, bad things happen. So maybe just end on that. Like, you know, if you, if you feel yourself, you know, getting to that point, maybe just uh, have a beer, have some snacks,
0: you know. Practice have a soda. the art of fly chi at Fly that point.
1: chi, right? That is when you put the rod down <laughs> and the fly chi moment happens. I guess fly chi would have a rod in your hand. I think, um, there's a forthcoming book uh keep an eye out
0: the art of chi. fly chi we need the to art have, fly chi uh like an instagram picture of like it's going to be all about the poses right so you you can pose with your rod and bring the fly chi energy into the world uh you know think of like the picture of, like the buddha like sitting in the lotus position yeah. but it'll be a guy you know standing with his waders on and a fly rod in one hand but there's there's got to be a certain fly chi pose that's your there homework, is, is. Come, come up with and that. And I, I think uh, what
1: you're gonna witness if, if you really follow this movement, which is already a movement, is already I'm sure it's already <laughs> on Instagram because I'm sure someone was listening and said that's dope. I'm that.
0: Don't worry, no one's what, listening.
1: What you're gonna see is the full <laughs> transformation from the, the carnal hunter, which was the real trout hunter 1069 into the real fly chi hunter 1069.
0: Yeah, well, it's the process of achieving enlightenment on the stream side.
1: It is, it is, it, it's, it's. We're all going for that one one way or the other. Yes, but anyway, that 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 is a top ten list for you right there, and I I, I sincerely hope that helps people. Uh, I know that we just talked a lot, we threw a lot of things out there, um, but you know these the, the ten things that we talked about, if if you can at least use those for reference, just internalize them a little bit. Hopefully that'll help. But my goal is that this simplified, probably didn't because that's just our nature. I hope this simplified things for uh, anyone listening just a little bit.
0: Yeah, so if you're interested in going further and practicing and cultivating the art of fly chi in yourself, We've got a three-day intro to fly fishing class that Paul's going to be teaching at the field school in Northern Maine coming up in May. And then in September, we've got some a guided fishing opportunity on the West Branch of the Penobscot, big water, big fish, big fun times. Two weekends of, of that. Year. And we'll yeah. have links to that in the show notes. And should we tease out what's coming in 2023 now? Is that worth doing or should we keep those cards close to our chest? Well, I don't think you and I have the capacity
1: not to just keep talking. Um, So
0: 2023, we've been in discussions about having a week-long fly fishing guide training class. There isn't really anything like that in the Northeast. I know there's some big ones out West. Um, but we were talking about some of the awesome traditions that we have in the northeast you know so instead of say like jet boats and what are those big boats those big row boats they have that they put on the western rivers out there you know what What are those called well like a drift boat drift you know. boat that's yeah. what it is and yeah you,
1: you see them on you see them in Maine once in a while but
0: but it'd yeah, be more like, like learning how to pull canoes and sort of the traditional main guide thing. So like pulling a 20 foot canoe and holding in a rapid, things of that nature. So definitely regionally focused. You know, if you go to a Western fly fishing thing, maybe it's all about dry flies. And they're just, we don't have the huge hatches in the Northeast like they do uh, more West. So, uh, you know, more focused on things, the traditions of the local area and the region. Um, so yeah, we're talking and- about that.
1: Yeah, and I, that would be so much fun, again, something I wish I would have done 20 years ago. Um, you know, like you and I both know, Tim, guiding is, uh, you know, it's a, it's a people industry, it's an entertainment industry, um, and it's a, it's a care, it's a care industry. And, and, and what the physical activity is matters, you know, like, and so if, it, if you know, in this week-long course, you know, you'll learn you know, the nuts and bolts mechanics of, of fly fishing, tying knots, you know, all, the, all that good stuff, but there's also the, the client care, and, and that's so huge, you know, keeping people laughing, keeping them warm, keeping them well-fed, uh, you know, that's, that's the true mark in my mind of a good guy, is someone who can not only provide the activity, but provide a, just a great experience all around for your clients, and so I, I'm really excited. I think this is, this is going to be a really neat program. I'm, I'm excited to get it going next year.
0: Cool. Yeah. So yeah. we have nothing, we have no information on that yet. So, so I don't have anything else to give you, but we'll probably write up a web page on it. I don't know, this summer or something. Um, so you can look for that if you're, if you're interested, but uh, we've gone on a long time and a lot of random tangents. So uh, I think let's wrap this one up, but thanks again, Paul, for being on the podcast. It's always fun to chat. And uh, yeah, maybe this stretch of warm weather is getting you thinking about spring getting out on the water
1: Uh, it is i mean we could go fishing today maybe that's my next
0: move yeah (laughs) awesome all right well
1: as always tim great to see you great chatting
0: yeah and let's do it again sometime
1: all right sounds good buddy
0: see ya you have been listening to the jack mountain bushcraft podcast for more information on our professional wilderness guide training programs that are college accredited and gi bill approved visit us on the web at j a c k m t n